going to begin reading at verse 22 and read to verse 41. It's a fairly familiar chapter, but just a little bit of a reminder of the context. The context is Pentecost. The Spirit has just been poured out. The 120 disciples have just gone out into the streets of Jerusalem speaking in tongues. And the crowd who witnessed this are amazed and they're asking, how is this possible? What is going on? Others are mocking them and saying these men must be drunk. And then Peter stands up and he begins to preach a sermon to explain what's happening. And he quotes from Joel 2 that we considered last week. And then he goes on in his explanation in verse 22 here. So this is the word of God, Acts 2, beginning at verse 22. You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the, lo- the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life, thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne, he, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, until I make thy thy foes thy footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly, that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart, and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. The text I call your attention to this morning is verse 39. 
For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, Acts 2 verse 39 is an important text for us to know. It is an important text for us to know because it proves that children of believers must be baptized in the New Testament church. To deny baptism to the children of believers is to deny the word of God in Acts 2 verse 39. It is important to know this text also because Acts 2 verse 39 is a covenantal text. Acts 2 verse 39 is not an isolated proof text for infant baptism. It is a text that connects the Old Testament promise of the covenant to the New Testament church. Everyone in Peter's hearing knew what promise Peter was talking about when he said, the promise is unto you and to your children. He was talking about the promise that God made to Abraham when God said to Abraham, I will be a God unto you and to your children after you. He was talking about the promise that in the Old Testament was always sealed when eight-day-old infants were circumcised, receiving the covenant sign and seal. It is important to know this text, finally, because this is a text that teaches the sovereignty of God in the covenant. It's clear from the text and from the context that the promise is not to everybody. It's clear from the text and the context that the promise is not even to all the children of believers who are baptized. The promise is to everyone whom the Lord our God shall call. Acts 2 verse 39 is a crucial text to know. But it's not enough simply to know Acts 2 verse 39. As believers, we must also hear the word of God to us in this text. We must hear the word of God to us in this text the way the men heard it on Pentecost morning. Read the context again. Who were these men that Peter was addressing? They were men under the conviction of sin. They were men looking at their hands as if those hands were still red with the blood of Jesus, whom they crucified. Ah, but there is relief. There is rescue for all who repent and believe the word of the gospel. The promise is unto you. Yes, the promise is even unto you who with wicked hands have killed the Christ. We must hear the text, not simply know it. We must also hear this text as believing parents who stand before the baptism font. Matt and Heidi must hear this text as they present their little one, Josiah David, before the Lord this morning. 
To be a Christian parent in some ways is to invite anxiety and fear into your life. How can I bring a child into this dark and evil world that we live in? How can I raise this child as a Christian? How can I raise this child as a Christian when I am such a sinner myself? How can I know that my son or my daughter will be saved when this child was conceived and born in sin? The response to all those questions is to hear and to believe the word of God to us in Acts 2 verse 39. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call call your attention this morning to this text and the theme of the sermon is God's promise to believers and their children. First, we will notice that this is a gracious promise that God makes. Secondly, that because it is a promise that comes from God to everyone whom he calls, that it is a certain promise. And then we'll conclude by noting that this is a powerful promise. A promise, in other words, that has an effect on the individuals who receive this promise and on the parents of children in the church. God's promise to believers and their children, first, a gracious promise, second, a certain promise, finally, a powerful promise. First of all, what is God's promise? God's promise is his living covenant word of salvation in Jesus Christ. His living covenant word of salvation in Jesus Christ. Children know what it means to make a promise. To make a promise is to say something. It is to give your word about something. And it is to say something specifically about what you are going to do. Or perhaps what you are going to give. You promise your friend that you will go over to her house and play with her after supper. You promise your mom that you will do your chores before you go outside to play. Yet the way we talk about promises can also be a little bit more complicated than that. Sometimes the promise and the gift are one and the same thing. That's the way it is, for example, when a man promises to marry a woman. There's obviously a lot to look forward to in the future when a man gets down on his knee and says, I'm going to marry you. There's the wedding celebration. There's the honeymoon. There's life together that's going to follow all of those things. And yet, when a man slips the ring on her finger, in effect, he is both making a promise and he is beginning to fulfill that promise to her. The promise... And the fulfilling of the promise, or at least the beginning of the fulfilling of the promise, are essentially the same thing. Now, let that thought hang for a minute as we begin to look at God's promise, the one that is spoken of here in the text. When Peter speaks of God's promise, there are three dimensions that ought to come to mind. The first dimension is what the Jews in Peter's audience would have picked up on right away. Promise. Promise is a word with deep roots in the Old Testament. God made a promise right away in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve. He said, there will be a seed 
a seed of the woman who will be born, who will crush the head of the serpent who just deceived you and led you into death. God made a promise to Abraham. He said, I will be a God to you, Abraham, and I will be a God to your children after you in their generations. God made a promise to David. David, you will sit on the throne of Israel, and your son will always sit on the throne of Israel after you. The promise that God made was always closely connected to his covenant. The covenant is God's friendship with his people in Jesus Christ. The covenant is a relationship, a relationship in which God and his people enjoy sweet fellowship and life together. And it is a relationship in which God first binds himself to his people by making a promise to them. That promise is important in the covenant because God's people are sinners. And they are sinners who are prone to doubt that God could ever really be their friend. And so we read in Hebrews 6 verse 17 that God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of the promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. He made a promise, and by that promise, he bound himself unto his people in the covenant. This is the promise Peter is speaking of when he says, the promise is unto you and to your children. It is the promise of the covenant. That's the first dimension. The second dimension comes from the event that was currently unfolding on Pentecost. When you read Acts 1 and Acts 2 carefully, you will find that the word promise comes up several times. And that when the promise comes up, it is always connected to the Spirit. Jesus says to his disciples in Acts 1 verse 4, Don't depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, Jesus said, you have heard of me. Then in Acts 2, verse 33, we find that Jesus, having ascended to the right hand of God and being exalted, has received of the Father the promise. And what is the promise? It is the promise of the Holy Ghost. The promise of the Holy Ghost, which he has now shed forth on his church. What is clear is that the promise of the Father is not only a promise to give the Spirit in the future, but the promise of the Father is the Holy Spirit himself, whom Jesus then proceeds to pour out on his church. The second dimension of the promise, that the promise is the Spirit, is in keeping with the first. Christ pouring out the Spirit is God realizing his covenant with his people? Or you can think of it this way. When the risen and ascended Jesus Christ poured out the Spirit on his church, it was like the bridegroom placing the ring on the finger of his bride. The blessings and the joys of the covenant come to everyone who has the promise of the Spirit. 
this person who has the promise of the Spirit is brought into union with Jesus Christ and given a true and living faith in Him. This person who is given the promise of the Spirit is justified by His faith and has the power of sanctification working within Him. The promise and the beginning of the fulfillment of that promise are one and the same thing in the Spirit. And yet there is always more to come. And that brings us to the third dimension. The third dimension of the promise is God's word to his people to give to them full and final salvation in the end. A promise makes you an heir. An heir is someone who has a legal claim on the land and wealth of his father. An heir is somebody who looks ahead to a future day when the land and wealth of his father will be fully in his own possession. Yet for now... His claim to that land and possession rests on a promise. Galatians 3 verse 29 says, If ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So not only does God make a promise to his people, not only does he begin to realize that promise by giving his spirit, but he also says there's more to come in the future. There are future blessings in store for you. And those future blessings include life everlasting in the new heavens and the new earth. They include the resurrection of the body and to live in conscious glory with Jesus Christ. Those future blessings include perfect bliss in heaven where every tear will be wiped away by God, where there will be no death. Those future blessings include being in the presence of God be designated as his holy and consecrated son or daughter and to live with him and to enjoy him forever. That's God's living covenant word of salvation in Jesus Christ. That's the promise Peter's speaking of here. This gracious and beautiful promise then the apostle proclaims by the spirit is to believers and their children. Peter says the promise is to you. Think about what that means in light of how he just defined the promise. To have the promise be to you is to be an heir of full and final salvation. If the promise is to you, then God has bound himself to you in Jesus Christ and sworn an oath to you that he will be a God to you and you will always be his people. If the promise is to you, then God is your friend. To have the promise be to you is to be filled with the spirit of Jesus Christ and to be a partaker of the blessings of salvation as those blessings begin to be realized in you in time. So you see how the nature of the promise makes it impossible that the promise would be to everybody who hears about that promise externally speaking. Not everybody who hears about the promise or knows something about the promise is a full and final heir of salvation. Not everyone who hears about the promise is bound to God in Jesus Christ. Not everyone who hears about the promise 
is the friend of God. Not everyone who hears about the promise externally speaking is filled with the Spirit or the blessings of salvation. Many who hear about the promise externally speaking do not repent. Many who hear about the promise externally speaking, perhaps they were even baptized, end up rejecting their baptism and they do not believe. And that leaves us with only one conclusion as to who the promise is for, who the you is that Peter is speaking of, and that is the elect. That's who Peter is speaking to when he says the promise is to you. Now Peter is standing before a multitude of people, and he does not know who in his audience will believe. And he does not know who in his audience will walk away in unbelief, having rejected everything that Peter has just said. What Peter does know is that there are men standing in front of him who have troubled looks on their faces, who are under the conviction of sin due to the word that he just proclaimed, that you have taken Jesus Christ and crucified him with wicked hands. What Peter can observe, in other words, in the crowd that is before him is the evidence that the Spirit that has just been poured out is moving in that crowd. And so he addresses any who will believe as a result of the Spirit's work, and he tells them what is theirs in Christ. The promise is to you. And your children. Notice what he does not say. He does not say the promise is to your children if they believe. He does not say the promise is to your children when they get old enough to confess their faith and live as active members of the church. He does not say the promise is to your children, assuming that they are regenerated. He says the promise is to your children. The promise is to you and to your children. He doesn't qualify it. He does not attach a condition to it. The promise is to you and to your children, period. You see all those other options would make the promise a conditional promise. Then God would not be making his promise to the children of believers anymore, but he would be making his promise to children as potential adults and potential believers. And the promise will only be fulfilled to them once they realize that potential and actually become believers. If there is a condition attached to this promise, then God is not making the promise to the children of believers as persons in their own right anymore, but he is making his promise with an asterisk provided that they fulfill the condition. But Peter does not put it that way. He does not attach an asterisk. What he says is the promise is to you and to your children period. This simple truth 
that our text proclaims ought to affect us in two ways. First, what it says is that God makes his promise to persons. He makes his promise to persons. He does not make his promise to persons if they do this or if they do that. He makes his promise to the person himself or herself. It does not matter if that person is a little child the size of a pinprick growing in his mother's womb or if that person is a 100-year-old woman. The promise is the personal God speaking a saving word to a person whom he loves with unconditional love. It's to persons. Second, what it says is that we must hear this word of promise. We must hear it and believe what he's saying to us as persons and about our children. I'm convinced a big part of the reason conditional theology develops is because this just sounds too good to be true. It just sounds too good to be true. I need to do something. I need to do something in order to be worthy of such a blessing. It can't be that God just loves me and my children because he wants to. It has to be based on the fact that I believe. It has to be based on the fact that I'm baptized. It has to be based on the fact that I'm a member of this church or, or that church. Or that I do good works. It has to be based on something that I do, something in me. But the whole point of a gracious promise made to persons is to make us stop. Stop. God is not interested in your hands. Especially when it was those hands that took Jesus Christ and wickedly crucified him. Those are the people he's talking to. God's not interested in your repentance, your faith, or your good works. As such, he is interested in them. He's interested in them as the fruit of his work in you. But God is interested in you. God is interested in your children. He promises to save them. The person. Graciously. And this gracious promise that God makes to believers and their children is a certain promise. It's a certain promise. The certainty comes from the fact that God calls to himself everyone to whom he makes this promise. The promise is to you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. That makes it certain. But we have to be clear about the call of God and what that means. It's evident from the context that Peter is preaching a sermon, and in that sermon he's preaching a call. And his call to the crowd that he's addressing is repent and be baptized. Peter's not trying to figure out who in his audience will believe and then identify those individuals and only preach the call to them. 
That would be hyper-Calvinism. Peter's not a hyper-Calvinist. Peter is proclaiming the call to the entire crowd in front of him, to all who are listening. He is proclaiming the call to the men who are under conviction of conscience and who are saying, men and brethren, what, what, what must we do? And he's proclaiming the call to those men who earlier were mocking the 120 disciples and saying that they're drunken. This call that Peter is preaching is what we call the external call of the gospel. He is preaching to the ears of men. And he is preaching in such a way that there is a note of divine authority ringing out from his proclamation. You all who crucified Jesus with wicked hands are called by God to repent of this sin and be baptized. He's saying that. He's also preaching this in such a way that the promise of the gospel is also impressed upon all who hear him. He's preaching the promise of the gospel. Listen for a minute to Acts, uh, to, to the canons, rather, the canons of Dort. Head to Article 5 that describes the external call of the gospel. This is what Peter was doing, and this is what the church institute, through its preachers, are called to do. Preach the external call of the gospel. Canons, head to Article 5 says, the promise of the gospel is that whosoever believes in Christ crucified shall not perish but have everlasting life. This promise, together with the command or the call to repent and believe, ought to be declared and published to all nations and to all persons promiscuously, that means to as many as possible, and without distinction, not saying, well, these people over here, but not those people over there, but without distinction, to whom God, out of his good pleasure, sends the gospel. That's the external call of the gospel that is preached along with the promise. Now, it might seem natural at this point to assume that this external call is what is referred to in verse 39 when he says the promise is to, all, to, to you and to your children and all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Well, he's preaching a call. He must be talking about that call. But if that's the accurate interpretation of the text then this is what Peter would be saying. If the call in verse 39 is the external call that is preached to all, then this is what he is saying. God makes his promise to every person who hears me preaching the gospel right now. God makes his promise to every last child who will ever be born to believing parents and baptized in the church. God makes his promise to all the people of the nations who will hear the preaching of the gospel in the future. God makes his promise to all who hear the external call of the gospel. But if that's the call, if the call in verse 39 is the external call, that creates a problem that maybe you have been able to identify. The problem it creates is that many who hear Peter preaching the external call do not believe it. They do not repent. They are not sorry for crucifying Jesus. 
They do not live a godly life. They are not saved. And in fact, they end up perishing in the judgment of God. So if the call is the external call in Acts 2 verse 39, the implication is those to whom God makes his promise, that covenant promise from the Old Testament that is fulfilled in the pouring out of the Spirit, those to whom God makes his promise end up perishing outside of Christ. So how do you explain that? Well, this is where conditional salvation enters in. God makes his promise to every one of you who hears the external call if you repent and believe. But it is your repenting and believing that will actually get you the substance of the promise itself. What that means practically is that the promise is very uncertain. Just think about it from the point of view of those men who have just been convicted of crucifying and killing Jesus. How did they kill and crucify Jesus? Well, they killed and crucified him when they were blinded in unbelief. But they killed and crucified him after having heard him for three and a half years proclaiming the call of the gospel externally to them, repent and believe, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Having heard that external call of the gospel, they rejected it, they took him and crucified him, nailed him to the cross. Now Peter comes along and says, the promise is unto you if you repent and hear the gospel that is externally preached to you. If. Oh no. That's exactly what we failed to do last time. That's exactly what we failed to do in response to the ministry of Jesus Christ. In fact, so much did we fail to do it that we even crucified the Lord. You see, a conditional promise of salvation made to sinful men with blood on their hands is a surefire road to uncertainty and doubt. But that's the implication if the call in the text is the external call and if the promise is conditional. But there's another way that we can talk about the call of God and there's another way in which the Bible talks about the call of God. The call of God is not only when a preacher stands up in a pulpit and proclaims externally, repent and believe. The call of God is when the Spirit addresses the person directly. The call of God is when the Spirit inhabits a person, addresses a man on the level of his heart and says, come to me. Just think about how this works. First of all, you have the Bible. And what is the Bible? It's the inspired Word of God. It's the Word that the Spirit breathed out and gave authority to. Then you have the preacher who explains and exposits and proclaims externally what this Word says. But then you have the Spirit Himself. And the Spirit takes that proclaimed gospel and He speaks it into the heart of the person whom he calls. And the effect is repentance. 
and faith and a new life. Listen to the canons again. This is on page 68, canons 3-4, article 10. It's explaining why some obey the external call of the gospel and why others don't, but specifically the positive. Why do some obey the external call of the gospel? Canons 3-4, article 10. It must be wholly ascribed to God, who as he has chosen his own from eternity in Christ, so he confers upon them faith and repentance, rescues them from the power of darkness, and translates them into the kingdom of his own Son, that they may show forth the praises of him who hath called them out of darkness into his marvelous light, and may glory not in themselves, but in the Lord according to the testimony of the apostles in various places. Why do some obey the external call and others do not? It's because the Spirit confers upon them faith and repentance. That's the internal call. And this call is a powerful call, in other words. It's a call that rescues a man. It is a call that because it is a call that comes from God, comes from God himself, the same God who once spoke, he said, let there be light, and there was light. Because this is a call that comes from that God, it can bring into being the things that are not as though they were, as Romans 4 puts it. The internal call is a call like when Jesus called to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth, and that dead man sat up and lived. But now it happens inside a man's heart. Now if that's the call that the text is talking about, there's no problem that arises from the fact that some reject the call. And that's because nobody who ever receives that internal call ever rejects it. The call of God internally by the Spirit itself is irresistible grace that awakens a man to faith and conversion in Christ, that call of God spiritually on the level of a man's heart is the promise at the same time being made and realized to that person. You see it happening to the men that Peter is preaching to on Pentecost morning. Before he even proclaims that external call, repent and believe, they have been pricked in their hearts. Why have they been pricked in their hearts? It's because the Spirit has already been working on them and in them. And the Spirit has been working on them and in them, not in a sort of provisional way just to get them ready to hear the gospel, but the Spirit has already been working on them at the deepest level of their hearts, opening their eyes to the kingdom, addressing them, calling them out of darkness into light so that they are troubled by what their wicked hands have done. That's why they ask that question. Men and brethren, what shall we do? That very question is evidence. The Spirit has been working in them. And the practical effect, if the call in verse 39 is the internal call, is that this promise is absolutely certain, beloved. That's why it was such a relief to those blood-stained men on Pentecost morning. They understood this isn't a promise that God is dangling in front of them like a carrot on a string. 
This promise was to them. And it was to their children. They believed that. That's what brought them rest. We're going to distill everything that we just said into a single point. This. The promise is certain because it is God's promise to his elect. And that tells us what we may be certain about, beloved. The text does not allow us to take for granted that all of our children are God's children. It doesn't allow us to do that. <clears throat> the text does not allow us as young people to take for granted that we must be saved because our parents are believers and our parents brought us into church when we were growing up. That kind of certainty is a false certainty. That kind of certainty is presumption. It's the kind of false certainty that the Jews had when they said, we have Abraham to our father. We have Abraham to our father. We're good with God. That's presumption. That's not faith. That's why John the Baptist responded to the men who said, we have Abraham to our father by saying, don't say you have Abraham to your father because God can turn these stones over here into the children of Abraham if he wants to. We may be presumptuous. There's a calling on our lives. Repent and believe. But we may be certain is that God's promise is to save believers and their children. We may be certain, first of all, about our own salvation. God makes his promise to me. Personally, that's faith. I believe that. We may also be certain that God has promised to save his people from the children of believers. We may be certain that God will use baptism and the teaching of his word in line with baptism to save his children. We may be certain that God will bless godly instruction from parents and in the good Christian schools and in the community of believers to save our children, the children of believers. We may be certain that our labor of love in the Lord as parents who discipline and rear our children and love for them is not a labor that is done in vain. It's not pointless. God's promise is to believers and their children. And when God says a promise, he doesn't speak it pointlessly. He doesn't speak it in vain. He doesn't say it and then attach a condition to it that could take the whole thing away. He just says it. And our calling is to believe that and live accordingly. All of this makes the promise powerful for those who receive it by faith. It makes it powerful, first of all, on an individual level. To hear God say these words to you as a person. I promise you that you are righteous in the blood of my son, Jesus Christ. I promise you, you are my heir and you shall receive eternal life. I promise you, you shall be transformed and made perfect after the image of my son. I promise that to you. God says that. Wow. What incredible relief can be found in those words and motivation. Motivation to live for this God who has been so gracious and kind when we didn't deserve it. It's 
powerful for parents who want to raise their children as Christians. If the promise of God was not to children, and specifically not to children as children, well, that would change everything as to how we view our children. Then we don't view them as heirs of God in Christ along with their parents, but now we have to think of them as potential converts. Potential converts, and if they believe, then they will be heirs. That changes the entire focus of Christian parents. That changes the entire focus of the Christian school. It changes the entire focus and the approach of parenting. But if the promise is to children, the children of believers, as children already, not as potential adults, but as children, that impacts the way we bring them up. For starters, it means we baptize them, and we baptize them without reservation. We mark them out as members of the church, the members of the church that they already are in Jesus Christ because they have righteousness, they have the Spirit, they have sanctification. Why would we not give unto them the sign and the seal that represents those things? But then the goal of parenting is not to get our children to become Christians. It's to make them understand and to believe who they already are in Christ. That's why we discipline them. That's why we have rules in our home. That's why we send them to the Christian school. That's why we bring them to church and train them to sit in church. It's to make them understand the promise of God is to them. The beautiful thing is this covenantal rearing of children by believers is exactly the means that God uses to fulfill his promise. Through that instruction, through that training, he leads his children to faith in Christ. There's power in the promise to individuals and there's power in the promise for the church as a whole. Notice that the promise is not only to you and your children, but it is to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. The occasion this morning was for a baptism. Therefore, and, and, and a baptism of a child that was born in this congregation, and therefore the focus was on believers and their seed. Well, there's a problem if we look at this text as exclusively about the believers and their children who are in this room right now. Peter wasn't just looking at the crowd in front of him and the children in front of him. Peter was looking far beyond them. He was looking out to the uttermost part of the earth. As many as the Lord our God shall call from all those who are afar off. I think that's a part of the text that we don't think about as often as we should And we need to ask ourselves whether we really believe that. We believe that God's promise is to save those, not only who are believers and their children in the church right here, but also those who are far off. In other countries, in other lands where the gospel has not yet gone forth. There's a missionary message in this text, and it's going to be fulfilled if you read the rest of the book of Acts. 
This is why Paul is going to go on his missionary journeys. It's because God's promise is to all those who are far off as well as to believers and their seed in the local congregation. What all of this should do is it should underscore that there is really power in the promise of God. It's the power to grow the church. The power to grow the church is in the promise of God. The power of the promise is the power to resist the world. It's the power to resist the devil. It's the power to stand fast until Jesus comes again. Beloved, let's not shrink back from that promise. Let's not say it's too good to be true or it could never be true because of this or that. Believe it. Believe God's promise that he makes to believers and their children. And then walk in your faith as individuals, as parents, and as a congregation. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father who art in heaven, we give thee thanks and we rejoice that thou hast made this promise to us and our children. Father, we confess our weakness that we can hardly believe this. We can hardly believe that such goodness and mercy would be given to us, pledged to us from thee without qualification, without provisions or conditions attached to it. We pray, O oh Father, for thy grace and for thy spirit that we may believe it and that we may live then in the freedom of the gospel and the freedom that thy promise gives to us and that we may lead our children to think about this promise and to believe it themselves as they are trained in the Christian school and in, in our homes. We pray, O oh Father, that we may not become like those who said we have Abraham for our father and therefore take for granted all of thy riches and goodness to us and become presumptuous. Forgive us, O oh Father, if that has ever been our attitude and strike that sin out of our hearts. But we pray, lead us to the grace of Christ and of the Spirit and let us walk by our faith. Hear our prayer, O oh Father, not because we are worthy to be heard of thee, but only for the sake of thy Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.